We're going to be back in the book of James today, if you want to turn there, the first chapter. While you turn there, I will go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, God. I thank you for your blessings. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the the lesson that we had this morning and how, Lord, it just, I feel like you've just orchestrated it with what we're going to hear today, God. And I pray, Lord, that this message, that this section of your word would rightly be taught and that you would apply it by your Holy Spirit to our hearts and our lives that we could apply it, God, as we as we're in James and the the practical nature of the topic, God, let it give us a desire to live into you. Let it give us a desire to live for the name of Jesus in this lost and dying world. Let us be a light by applying the things that you teach us here, God. I pray that you would help me to proclaim it with humility and yet with boldness, Lord. I pray that you would have any here, that you would open the ears to hear it, God. And if there's any here who have yet to bow the knee to you, God, I pray that you would work in their hearts and open their eyes to see you for who you really are and to see the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're just going to start with verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. As I, as I mentioned the last time I preached, the practical nation, n- nature of James's writings, the applicable nature of James's writings, that's what, that's what we're looking at here. This is a very, this is how you are to live book. This is what you should be doing. This is how a Christian should be walking in this world, and this is what it should look like. Um, and that's what we're really going to get into as we look at as we look through these next verses. James one verse nine, verse nine and ten. He says, "Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away." So what he's doing here is explaining a kind of a just the situation that we're looking at with us as people. And he says, let the lowly brother or the humble brother. Um, He's talking about here, he's not talking about a state of mind with humility. He's talking about your position in life, your situation in life. Um, You're humble or lowly in position maybe in this world in stature, and probably also talking about financially. He's talking about the poor guy. He's talking about me, essentially. Uh, depending on the, the perspective you look at, he could be talking about me on the next part, too, where he says, and the rich in his humiliation, because it depends on what part of the world you're in, right? Most of the world, if I'm in it, I'm the rich. But here, I'm certainly not considered rich. So it's all about perspective as far as that goes. But he's he's talking about here, he says, for the poor to rejoice in his exaltation. It's real easy in this world, and this especially in the United States, in our commercialism, in our consumerism society, to get 
down on your lot in life, right? I would like to make more money. It's real easy. to You don't have to look very far to find somebody that's better off than you financially, in stature, in position, those things. And you start thinking about that. But what James is saying here is rejoice in your exaltation. You're not going to be poor forever, okay? You have been elevated and exalted to a level with Christ. Turn over to Romans 8, 17. Uh, back up, actually, Romans 8.15, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We're talking about the creator of the universe. We're talking about the king, and we can go to him and say, Abba, Father. He's our dad. He's our father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Galatians 4, 7 says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. If you are worried about your position in this life, but you are a son of God, just stop it. Stop worrying. You're exalted. Rejoice in that fact that you are exalted to the point of being co-heirs with Christ. That is incredible. Rejoice in that fact. And then he says the rich in his humiliation. If you happen to be that, or if you feel financially stable, I would say this. Praise God that you have something more permanent. Because that financial stability can be gone in an instant. You see it happen all the time. The stock market crashes. Disaster hits. Whatever it is, or, or even more so, your financial stability does nothing when sickness strikes. No amount of money in the world can buy your health, right? So he's saying... You, rejoice here rejoice that even if you are high in stature or maybe maybe it's a political position maybe it's a pillar of the community type position how fast can those guys fall even the ones who haven't done anything wrong just a little bit of slander brings them right down right whether they did it or not they're guilty in the public's eyes those things are temporary rejoice that you have something more permanent that cannot be taken away which is that co-heir with Christ. And then the next verse, in, in verse 11, he says, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its flower falls and its beauty is lost. So too the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We've all seen this, right? We've seen the flowers shrivel and disappear. You can buy your wife flowers and put them on the table and they're not going to last very long. Even in the field, while they're still attached to the root, that flower is there for a short period of time. It serves its purpose and it withers away. Um, even more so where James was in the Mediterranean area, 
all around the Mediterranean Sea, it's a, it's a very seasonal area. So they'll have a whole lot of rains, and whatever growth they have grows really fast. And then there's a scorching heat that comes in. It's called the Sirico winds. So the way the flowers work around the Mediterranean area is they grow up real quick. The flowers are there for two or three days. And when that Sirocco wind comes in, it's like almost immediately they're gone. They just, the heat and the wind and they're just, they disappear. And that's the picture that we see here. That is how our life is here on earth. Paul said, my life is but a vapor, right? It's, it's just a mist. It's just a, I mean, you got that little dash on your, on your tombstone signifying your life. And that's really all it is. It's so short. It's gone. But yet he says, the rich men, they'll fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Just as quickly as the flowers disappear, the rich man will be gone. He, be, he may be right in the middle of his business deal. He may be, it's, it's amazing. You can see these older guys that are just, you know, rich among, I mean, rich among the rich, right? And they're getting into their 70s and 80s, and you can watch them, and they're still making these pursuits. Like, I want to, like, they got to be a billionaire before they die. And it's like, at what point is enough enough? At what point are you going to just slow down and realize this is all fleeting? This is all going to be gone. But they, they strive to leave their name. I'm an OSU grad. There's a guy named T. Boone Pickens. What did, what did he do? He, built, he donated millions, millions I think, like hundreds of millions of dollars to the university. Why? So they would build a stadium and put it real big up there. Boone Pickens Stadium. Why? He wants to be. He wants to leave a legacy. He wants to be known. He knows that he's going to die. He realizes that his life is coming to an end, but he wants somehow to leave his name on that building. Well, I got news for him. In 20 years, that building's going to be old again, and everybody's going to go, "Man, what a dump! We really got to rebuild this thing." And some other rich guy is going to come along and do the same thing, and he's going to say, hey, I want a name. You see, before it was T. Boone Pickens, it was Lewis Field. Well, who's that guy? Nobody remembers. It's a, who's he? Well, that's, that's going to happen. It's but a flower shriveling away, and they die in a pursuit of nothing, basically. Praise God. Whether you're, and and what, I think what, what James is saying here is, be content. Be content in where you are, right? If you have been gifted abundance, use it for the glory of God and praise God that he has given you something so much more. If you've been gifted and lacking, use that as a time to trust God and praise God for it that you have so much more as a co-heir with Christ. And then he, so basically there at the end, what he's saying is, boast in Christ. Your boast should be in Christ. You should not put your trust in your money. You should not put your hope in making more money, but boast in Christ. He is your Savior. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who... Love him. Blessed is the 
is the man who remains steadfast in trial. I think even through the first eight verses of James, as we go through James, we're going to see a lot about trials. We, we can learn a lot about trials in this first chapter of James, um, especially verses 2 through 8. We saw it. That was the last sermon. Um, but what do we learn about trials? If you go back, this is what you basically see. We are to welcome trials with joy. There will be various kinds of trials for us to rejoice in. Trials test our faith. Trials produce steadfastness in our faith and our lives. They lead to maturity and wholeness. They lead to a full functioning Christian life. They provide opportunity to trust in God. Trials provide opportunity for God to provide. Trials provide opportunity for us to be humble and acknowledge our need and God's goodness. They provide us an opportunity to prove our faith and not doubt. They provide a test by which our faith can be measured. And blessing is promised to those who remain steadfast under trial. Trials are not viewed in Scripture as a bad thing. Trials are viewed in Scripture as a good thing, a thing to rejoice in. Um, it says he will receive the crown of life. He's talking here about the uh, during the Greek games, the, the Stephanos, is that how you say that? Stephanos, it's, a, it's the wreath that they would give to the, victory, the victors of the Greek games. So he's comparing this here to, a, he's comparing our trials here to a contest. And, he, and he's showing us, I think he's teaching us here, that the purpose of the trial is so that God can show his power through you in this contest, so to speak. So first off, he gives you the privilege of suffering for his name's sake. And then he will reward your steadfastness. Count it all joy. That's what it says in verse 2. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's, it's, it's easy to preach this. It re, it's really easy to say these things. It's a whole lot more difficult to actually do it when the trials come. Isn't it? It really is. But um, So he gives us the privilege of suffering for his name's sake. Now you think about that. Suffer for, he he has the, gives us the privilege of suffering for his name's sake. To the world, that sounds absurd, right? You're going to, you're going to suffer persecution for me, and that's a privilege. That's an honor. I think if we were in a place where we understood um, kingdoms and kings a little better, this might actually make more sense to us. If you were a pauper in a kingdom... And the king came along and said, I want you to come with me. You're not going to be this pauper anymore. You're now going to be with me. You're going to be in my court. And you're going to be the guy that stands in front and receives the ridicule. I think we would understand that more like, that's the king. The king just talked to me. The king just came and got me. I didn't even think he knew I existed. I didn't even think he cared about all of his common people. But that's essentially what Christ has done for us. He's come and gotten us out of our pauperness. He's, he's come and got us out of the filth and brings us to him and says, you're going to be my heir. You're going to be co-heirs with me, and you're going to have the privilege of receiving the same persecution that I received. 
You're going to have the privilege of receiving the same treatment from this world that I received. That is an honor. That is a privilege. And if you think about the competition, is the competition, is, is it really about the trophy? Is that really what you go out and you guys that have competed before? That we got a couple of state championship football players in here. Was it really because you wanted that ring so bad? You could go get the ring made. All you got to do is go to a jewelry store. They'll make it for you. You can have them put whatever you want onto it. It's not about the ring. It's not about the trophy. It's not about the medal in the Olympics or the wreath in the Greek games, right? It's about the satisfaction of being on top. It's about being the best. That's what the competition in in sports is about. That's what it was in the running. Only one runner got the prize. It wasn't because the crown was so valuable, but it was the fact that he got it. He was standing at the top of the podium. And that's what I think we can see here. We're running this race. It's not about the, the end prize. It's about the satisfaction of God seeing his power work through us and being privileged enough to know the Lord. And it's the reminder that Jesus Christ is with us, equipping us, rewarding us, and loving us. That's what the prize is about. And then he says in verse 13, let no one say, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So now we're seeing a, a, a difference in trial and temptation. Um, the difference between trial and temptation is the motive behind the trial. God uses trials to grow and mature the Christian heart, while temptation is put forth in order to induce a man to do wrong. God will never and can never incline a heart to do evil. That's not the reason he puts trials in front of you, is not to try to make you stumble. It's to make you stronger. It's to make you trust in him. It's to equip you. But when a man tempts another man, or when with an equipping hour this morning, we hear Satan, the Satan, show up in his subtlety and brings the temptation, their goal in that tempting is to bring man to sin, to cause them to sin, to get them to fall, to get them to stumble, to incline their heart to do evil. See, see, the fact in this is no one can tempt another one to sin unless he's sinful himself. So this is where we see the, the attributes of God coming out. God is holy. God is perfect. God is sinless. So he cannot tempt another to sin. And yet that is why the sinner loves to entice others to sin. They love their sin. They know they're guilty in their sin. And somehow... They think it will make them feel better if they bring somebody else into it. Has anybody ever seen this? If you haven't, you haven't been in the world very long. Has anybody ever done this? I was extremely guilty of this 
I, I can look back and I can think of lives that it appeared that I corrupted, which all I really did was let them into what they wanted anyway. But before I knew Christ, I don't... It, I didn't think about it. It wasn't like this thing I would think, sit around and think about. But I knew for some reason I wanted others to indulge in the things that I was indulging in. And that's exactly what's going to happen with you and the people around you that are sinners. They are going to try to lead you into temptation. They're going to try to get you to indulge in their sin. Why? It makes them feel better about themselves. They love sin. Their heart loves sin. Their heart loves evil, and they love to see other people go there. They're evangelists for sin. They go out and they proclaim it, and they try to draw people in. Why? It's their nature. So beware. Beware, Christians. Because I don't know what it is, but there's something more. When you wear the name of a Christian and you proclaim that, there's something more that makes people want to draw you into that even more. Am I right? If they find out you're a preacher, it's even worse. It's like, it's like some kind of challenge or goal to draw you into, the, into their evil realm. Why? Why is that? Because they are sinners. But God cannot tempt us into sin. But yet, what do men try to do? Even Christians are inclined to do this at times. But sinful men, very inclined to do this. Unsaved, unregenerate people, they want to what? They want to blame God. Right? We saw, it in the, we saw it this morning. In the fall of man, Adam had eaten the fruit. And God asked him about it. And he says, the woman that you gave to me. She gave it to me. It was her fault, but you gave her to me. What, what is he doing? He's trying to blame God. And, and I've seen it happen when people get a hold of the sovereignty of God. Because we obviously believe God is sovereign here. Our name is Sovereign Grace Bible Church. God is sovereign. He's in control. And, and people find that out and it's like, oh. Oh, if he's in control of everything, then I can just blame him for all my sin. It happens. Sinful man also, as much as he wants to pull others into his sin, there's a conscience there. There's a God-given knowledge of sin in his heart. And so not only does he want to pull others in, but he wants to blame somebody else. And if they can blame God, then it takes all the pressure off. But we, we obviously know and we can see right here in James... No one can say I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So, verse 14 tells us, James is going to tell us where this really comes from. Where does this temptation come from? Where does this sin come from? He says, but each person is tempted when, he's, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. He's lured away or drawn out. Um, I think the terminology here is kind of, it, it makes me think of a fish to the bait, right? Um, sin's man, uh, sin to man's heart is like bait to a fish. And there's times, any, is there any fishermen in here? Have you guys ever caught a bass? I've caught a couple that still had like 
some other, it just ate, that it hadn't swallowed completely. You ever had that happen? A, a smaller fish, I've had it happen twice. I've had one, I caught one, had a crawdad, half swallowed. And I caught it, and the crawdad's trying to crawl out of its mouth. And I caught another one, had a fish half swallowed, a bigger, a smaller fish than it, and it's still moving. Why? Because that bait, whatever bait I was using was working that day, and it could not resist it, right? These guys that make the bait, they're, they've done a lot of study, and they know what works. They figure out what draws that fish in. And even though he wasn't hungry, he's still trying to swallow his last meal, and he couldn't resist. That's what sin does to our sinful man's heart. And as a Christian, we have to learn how to fight against that. But he's given us equipment. He's given us tools. He's given us armor to do that. He's given us his word. He's given us prayer, the ability to approach the throne of grace. But as a sinful man, an unrepentant man, you have not a tool. You're like the fish with the crawdad half in your mouth, and you can't resist. When that comes by, you will jump on it. That's what he's. That's what he's looking. That's what he's saying here. Um, the Holy Spirit can give us grace to resist this. And let me say this: it's only by His power that we can resist that. If we're left to ourselves, we will indulge. But He's He's been given to us as a gift. He He, he dwells with us. He dwells in us. But for the unsaved, there is no power against it. You'll drink it down willingly. Now, you may have a little bit of resistance of a fear of getting caught. There's a little bit of a faint sign of a conscience. But it's more of a how can I do this and get away with it kind of thought. How can I keep this hidden and in the dark kind of thought. It's just like we talked this morning. One of the signs that you know you're saved is because of your struggle with sin, the fact that you are trying to fight against this, the fact that you don't want to go forward with this. That's the battle. But if you're not born again, that struggle is not there. It's not real. You can fake it for a while, but it's not real. And then in verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, Brings forth death. Yeah, it'll give you pleasure for a season. Isn't that what sin promises? Try this little bit of drug. I, I was talking to some kids at school a couple of days ago, and I said, I cannot understand why somebody would take meth for the first time. And then I thought, you know what? No, actually I can because it was just as dumb for me to start drinking for the first time. I knew what that would do. I could see testimony after testimony of lives that runned. But yet my sinful heart somehow said, because the world was telling me, hey, this is fun. Hey, this will make you popular. People will like you. You'll go out and party and you'll have a good time. And I believed it. And so for a season, it seemed fun. But the end was death. And praise God, he pulled me out of that. But it's the same thing no matter what. I mean, meth, it seems like, well, that's just stupid because you can see how much people are destroyed on it. That's the case with all sin. 
it will all destroy you like that. Meth just seems to be an accelerated version. So, yeah, it's promised to have fun. It's promised, hey, and and here's the other thing. On, On those type of addictive substances, your pride, your sinful pride, a lot of times is what allows people to do it for the first time. I know some people get addicted the first time, but not me. I'm strong. I got a strong will, right? I can handle it. And the next thing you know, they're on the front cover of Jailbirds, right? And that's just one example. It goes on and on. It can be anything. Lust, anger, greed. It's all promised like the rich men we talk about. It was promised to him, promised to them, hey, if you get rich, this is going to be a great life. Everything's going to be fantastic. And, and what happens? Sooner or later, they're laying on their deathbed going, what happened to all of it? It's all fleeting. I have all this money in the bank, and I, what am I going to do with it, right? It's temporary. Evil men promise you the same thing. So sin brings you away the temptation. Evil men tell you the same thing. Hey, if you'll just do this, you'll have it great. And the end is death. So I ask you, where are you today? This is where it gets real. Are you upset when you come to church and the preacher's talking about the things you shouldn't do and it just aggravates you? Why is he always telling me that Christianity is just a bunch of rules? I don't need somebody telling me what I can and can't do. Are you justifying some sin in your mind right now? It's probably come up in your mind and you're trying to justify it and say, yeah, it's okay. It's all right. Or are you blaming someone else for your sin? Well, I, I, I the people around me, my work, they, I'd lose my job if I quit doing this or whatever it is. God made me this way. I can't stop. God made me this way, so I've heard that one before. If, if that is you, then I have one command, and that is repent. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ, and he will take that away. He will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember what I said? The only way that we can fight, the only power we have to fight against this sin is the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are justifying your sin, if you are indulging in sin, if you are upset because somebody's telling you you can't sin, repent and you will receive that gift. Turn to him. And if you already have repented and you've turned to him and you're dealing with these things, then let today be the day that you submit to that power. Let today be the day that you submit to his word, to James. The cha- James chapter 1 right now is calling you to repent and put your faith in Christ. And then verse 16 and 17, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. All good. You can underline that, capitalize that. All good comes from God. To believe anything other than that is to be deceived. That's what James says right here. Every good gift, every perfect gift come 
comes from above. He is the father of lights. You notice this? He goes back to the creation here. He goes back to the natural world to kind of explain this thing. He created light. Remember? Let there be light. And all the sources of light that we have on this world, he created those. But those things change. That's what it's saying. He says, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow. You realize that he, the light that God has, the light that God is, the light that is Jesus Christ, has no shadows? See, when the sun, as the earth rotates, we see shadows, right? And it changes all the time. The clouds come in, the light changes. We can sit here for a church service and the light will change that's outside because of all the different things. He's saying he does not change. There are no shadows with God. There are no hidden areas of darkness that you can hide in. You can't lurk in the shadows when it comes to the Father of lights. Why? All good things come from him. All the gifts. You can't take credit for any of it. You can't take credit for your salvation, certainly. But you can't take credit for anything good that you have been given, for any gifts that you've been given. It's kind of like I was in class the other day, and there was one of my students who's pretty tall. And he was kind of like, they were comparing, you know, like I'm taller than you. And it was like, he was the tallest. He's kind of like, yep, I'm taller than you. I said, Look at you brag about that like you had something to do with it. You know? Like you can make yourself taller. You you didn't have anything to do with it. It's kind of like intelligence. You're given a certain amount. Now, can you develop it? Yes, absolutely, and you should. But when guys are like, yeah, I'm highly intelligent, that's a gift from God. Your height is from God. You have no control over that. That's the way it is with all of our good gifts and and he and he goes to a gift he explains the gift he's going to use this in verse 18 he says of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature so james now he's going to point to the greatest gift that comes from above the greatest gift that we have received and that is the gift of regeneration it's the rebirth it's being born again And I want to note a few things here. I think it's very important that we get this. First off, every good gift is from God. I think we've made that clear. Secondly, look at what verse 18 says. Of his own will, he brought us forth. It's of his own will. Now, what point does your will have anything to do with that? It's kind of like the kid's height. Like somehow he can brag about being tall. It's by God's will that you are born again, believer. It's by God's will that you are saved. And it's by God's circumstances and his sovereignty that he has brought you in. Very clear in that. And then he says it is according. The the third thing I want you to get here is it is according to the word of truth. First Peter 1 3 says this. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The word of truth that he is talking about here 
In James, he's talking about the gospel, God's word, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And through this word, we are born again. You cannot have salvation apart from the word of God. That's why Paul this morning and, and probably later on today in, or in uh, the school of ministry is dealing with this liberalism, liberalism in Christianity. The people who want to discredit the Bible, the people who want to somehow discredit even Christianity and say, well, those Hindus, they love God, right? The Muslims, they worship God, so they, they could be saved, right? God's not going to send them to hell. No, it's by the word of God and it's by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And apart from him, nobody will come to the Father. It's very clear. James reemphasizes it here. It's through the word of truth. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is it. The preaching of God's word is how he chooses to save sinners. It's by his will that you are born again. And it's through his word that he does that. It's all by him. He's the one that decreed it to be through his word. So if it's going to be by his will, it's got to be through his word. Period. That's it. Through Christ. And that's the gospel. And, and the question I would pose to you today is, have you believed that? Have you put your faith in the word of God? Do you believe that it is true? Because if you don't, you need to evaluate your position with God and his will for your life. <clears throat> And then we're going to go on into verse 19. It changes, kind of changes gears a little bit right here. And it really gets into the practical application. All of these things that I just said are true. And because they're true, here we go with verse 19. So then, or know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Uh-oh. Is anybody else in trouble? As I was reading this, I was like, uh-oh. This is going to hurt. This is getting down to where it's real. This is getting down to, I call myself a Christian, and then he says, this is what I should look like. Uh-oh. So because of the gospel, because of that word of truth, because of that great and perfect gift from above of regeneration that we have received, James has given us this practical advice. He says, quick to hear. Listen to people when they talk. I, I don't know. This seems to be more of a problem with men. I may be wrong about that, but it just seems like we have a worse problem with listening than women do in general. We don't listen. It's a natural part of the fall, I think, that we stopped. I don't know what happened, but we don't listen. Hey, listen, men, you don't have to immediately fix all your wife's problems. Listen to her. First off, you need to hear her out so that you can make sure you understand the problem. Because the biggest problem may be that you're not listening. That may be the problem you need to fix. And it's easy, but it's hard. I don't understand it. And the same thing goes for parents. When your kids are telling you something... Even when they're in trouble, listen to them. 
Listen to what they have to say. They might shed some light on what's going on. Let other people talk. Here's the reality. A quickness to listen is a sign of humility. And maybe that's why it's harder for men because I think we're more naturally prideful uh, than women. But someone who is quick to listen and slow to speak is usually a very humble person. And I think it has a lot to do with Philippians 2.3 that says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When you cut people off, or when they're talking and you're thinking about what you're going to say next, this is a bad deal when debating. It's a bad deal debating scriptures and debating apologetics and even those things. We tend to do this. But when we do that, when we cut people off or when we're not really listening we're thinking about what we're going to say next, it's a sign that we're not counting that person as higher than ourselves. We're counting our thoughts and our, our ideas and our rights higher than theirs. And that's not humility. That's the opposite of humility. Just think about that when you're in a conversation next time. You know, if if it was somebody of that you had the utmost dire respect for, uh, think of your favorite Bible teacher. Think of your favorite theologian, whoever it is. R.C. Sproul. We've heard a lot. I mean, he just a great work that he's done for the Lord. He went on to be with the Lord last week, but. You know, if if it was somebody like that, and they were telling you, maybe you didn't agree, because you you don't agree with everybody on everything, right? So maybe you didn't agree, but I am going to listen, right? I I got so much respect for this guy. I may not agree, but man, I he knows a lot more than I do. I'm going to listen to him. So it has to do with the amount of respect you have for the other person as well. And shouldn't we love our neighbor as ourselves? Bible says to love your enemies. So be quick to hear. Hear people out. Slow to speak. Um, one way to be slow to speak is to listen more. Right? I mean, he puts this together very wisely. If we're listening more, we're going to speak less. And you can't listen and talk at the same time. And it also means that you should think. It's slow to speak, so it's not just listening. It's also thinking before you talk. Ask yourself, in, in these, especially in any kind of intense conversation or very serious conversation, is what I'm about to say, is that going to glorify God? Because how many people, including me, would like to take some statements back? I think back even five, six, seven, ten years ago at some of the things I said. Once in a while, they'll just come into my mind like, wow, I said that. Man, I wish I had that one back. If I would have been slow to speak, I never would have said it. I would have considered it before. I would have found a better way to say it, or I may not have said it at all. Be slow to speak. And this goes for Internet conversations as well. It's actually easier it amazes me that we're, we type this thing out. We can actually read it before we send it. So many people don't. I've been guilty. Let me encourage you, if you're, especially if you're in some kind of theological debate or Christian debate, 
But any time, it, it don't matter what the debate is or what the conversation is. When it's getting a little bit intense, read that thing before you post it. Maybe wait to give yourself a time limit and say, I'm going to go do something else for 20 minutes. You have this option with Internet. It's kind of good, but nobody uses it. It seems like the Internet hatred is way worse than the face-to-face, right? Because you don't have to see their face whenever they're like shocked that you would say that or it, you don't have to see their face when it actually hurts them it attacks them go do something else come back and read it and see if you still should post it there's been a lot of times i've done that and i didn't post there's been a lot of times i've typed up a whole thing and about to hit the button and then just well what good's that going to do slow to speak Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not liking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And so when you do speak, slow to speak, and then when you do speak, Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. We just need to think about it. We need to slow down. Listen, consider the perspective of the other person, try to gain insight to what they're saying, think before we talk, and then pray to God that we can speak graciously. That's getting real, isn't it? I, would, I think I could probably ask for a show of hands of how many people have failed in this recently, and probably all the hands would go up. I know mine would, both hands. But at this point, let's, let's heed the word of God and let's go in forward. Let's do better, right? Let's pray to God that we would do better and, sh- and pray that he would show us that when we do, when we fail in it. And then he says, slow to anger. We're not done yet. It's still coming. Slow to anger. And this applies to all situations and with all people. Um, especially in those conversations with people who are anti-God. That's one that seems to, it just came into my mind. Um, There's a real tendency to get frustrated and angry with those who have not believed the truth. But Spurgeon said this, Spurgeon said, being angry with a sinner for sinning is like being angry with a blind, fan, blind man for not being able to see. What do we expect? I mean, do you get angry? Like when you see things go on and you're just, you're furious, like, oh, I can't believe that guy treated me this way. I can't believe that guy cut me off. I can't believe this or that or whatever it is. We get mad. I do it at school quite often. I get angry at these guys for acting like sinners. And the truth is, they're just following their nature And I have the answer for that, and I fail so many times to share it with them. How many times have you been angry with somebody that was for sinful acts, and you have the answer? But here's the here's the problem: we give in, we lose our composure, and we give in to rage. And make no mistake, we've all done it. It may look different with different people. When I do it, it's quite obvious. Nobody's wondering, hey, is that guy mad? It's pretty, it comes out pretty clear. Kind of a blow up, kind of an explosion of 
It's not good. But some other ones may just get quiet. But there's really no difference. Either way, we're giving in to anger. He says slow to anger. It doesn't say slow to anger and blowing up or slow to anger and yelling a lot. No, it says slow to anger. So you have to know what's in your heart. No matter what it is, you should be slow to anger. Some want to get physical. Some want to get really loud. But we've all, when we get in that angry state, we've all lost control of our minds. And look at what he says in verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What does that mean? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do you think that your anger, your indignation, your hot temper will ever work the righteousness of God? This is the problem with Facebook. We get mad and we pounding away on that keyboard, post it. Yeah, and then you're just waiting, waiting on them to reply. And then you just, has anybody ever said, man, have you ever seen a reply that says, you're right, I think I'll repent? No, when do those people repent? When do people come to Christ? It's not through anger. It's through love and graciousness. It's got to be the grace of God that brings them. It's got to be the grace of God that saves them. So why do we think that somehow through our wrath we can get them into that grace? It's absurd. Will men be saved because you yell louder? Will they be saved because you demean their ignorance? And when I say ignorance, I mean they just don't know. They don't know the gospel. They don't know how we got the Bible. They don't know church history. They don't know the facts of evolution being false but yet we get mad at them for some reason they've just they're just following their nature will your children be saved because you get angry with them or will they be saved because you teach them when they sin that it is sin and that there is a cure which is jesus calvin said that god cannot be heard except when the mind is calm and sedate. So you're in the middle of your angry situation. You're in the middle of blowing up at somebody that you've been praying for to get saved. God's telling you something. and You can't hear him because of your rage. He's telling you how to handle it, but you can't hear him because of your rage. God will not and cannot work in these problems. When we allow our anger to take control because the man's anger, um, when, when we allow it to take control because the man's anger does not and will not produce the righteousness of God, that's not how it's going to work. It's going to come through a loving message of the gospel every time. So to close, turn over to Luke chapter 23. Verse 32, there was a lot of things I could read on this particular subject. But, but look at this, verse 32, there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be, to be put to death. 
And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals on one the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Earlier, Pilate asked him to speak, and he gave no answer. He was slow to speak. And when he did speak, he was on the cross, and he said, It is finished. We have an example who is Christ. And here it is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who has just been tormented and ridiculed and beat and spit and absolutely trampled on who did not deserve it and he's hanging on a cross and he says forgive them for we know not what they, for they know not what they do and yet if we get all twisted off and bent out of shape and come back spewing hatred out of our mouth just because somebody disrespects us a little bit we have an example to follow we can read it right there that is what slow to anger looks like. So I pray, my prayer is for me that I would follow this, that I would take heed this warning. My prayer is that you would do the same and that we would go forth loving one another, loving the lost enough to tell them the truth so that they would have a power against that sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. I thank you for this instruction that you've given us, that you have not left us without examples, that you have not left us without instruction, that we can easily go to your word and see how we are to act. And God, I pray that you would forgive me for my lacking in these things. I pray that you would teach me by your Holy Spirit to better observe better behave the way that you've instructed us here in this book. Especially on the slow to speak and the quick to listen and the slow to anger. God, I've I have such a problem with this flesh and that. And I pray, God, that you would just grant me humility that I would realize that these other people around me, I should esteem them higher than myself. That you have people in this city, that you have people around me in my everyday life that, are, that belong to you and that I should call them in grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.